Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. Democratic Senator Joe Manchin raising the alarm on inflation, calling on the White House and congressional leaders to cut back on spending. And that inflation, it's hitting record levels. The pressure is on. What can be done? And when should Americans expect to see the light at the end of the tunnel? An expert breaks down this complex issue for us. The Biden administration is pressing for a quick passage of a U.S. semiconductor bill. Lawmakers say it's a national security issue. Details from an investigation reveal how ballot abuse occurred at a local election in Arizona. That's in a case where a former mayor admitted to ballot harvesting. President Biden and Israeli Prime Minister Yair Lapid sign a new joint declaration expanding the security relationship between the United States and Israel. The White House says the pledge will include reaffirming a commitment to block Iran from acquiring nuclear weapons. The joint pledge will also note the United States and Israel's ongoing support for a memorandum of understanding that was finalized when Biden was vice president. The official also said it will state support for Ukraine. In an interview with Israeli media before the trip, Biden said he would keep Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps on the list of U.S. foreign terrorist organizations, even if that would put an end to the 2015 Iran nuclear deal. Biden also says he would use force against Iran as a last resort to keep it from obtaining nuclear weapons. After Israel, Biden will travel to Saudi Arabia to discuss the energy crisis and hold talks with other Gulf allies. Key Senate Democrat Joe Manchin is raising the alarm on inflation. In a statement yesterday, he said Washington can't add any more fuel to this inflation fire. This could spell trouble for President Biden's Build Back Better social spending package. NTD's Jessica Beatty has more. With inflation at a new 40-year high, Senator Joe Manchin Wednesday blasted the White House and congressional leaders for not doing enough. In a statement, he wrote, For more than a year, leaders in Washington have ignored the serious concerns raised by myself and others about the rising cost of inflation. He said it's time to produce more energy at home and get unnecessary spending under control. This as Democrat leaders push to reach a scaled-down agreement on Biden's social spending package by the end of summer. A reporter asked Manchin if he thinks they could reach a deal by the August recess. Yeah, it's too early to say. I mean, here's the thing. September 30th is a drop-dead date. We know that as far as if you can use this reconciliation. Uh, and to me, that's, that's the date you use. Soaring prices for food, housing, and gasoline have driven inflation to a new 40-year high. New data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics shows inflation soared 9.1% in June compared to a year ago. Economists describe inflation as too many dollars chasing too few goods. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell Wednesday blamed Democrat spending for the inflation we're seeing now. The Democrats complaining about inflation today voted in lockstep for the bill that brought us here. Republican Senator Josh Hawley said he thinks Democrats' plan to combat inflation could make things worse. Their plan to combat inflation is inflationary. They want, to, they want to raise taxes and they want to spend more money, like hundreds of billions of dollars more. It's insane. They're the reason we have the inflation. Meanwhile, White House economic advisor Cecilia Rouse Wednesday said the Federal Reserve is starting to make movements and we're starting to see their changes. So their, their processes are in motion. Uh, we have full faith and confidence that over the coming months that inflation will be coming down. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen Thursday said combating inflation is the Biden administration's top priority. 
Jessica Beatty, NTD News. U.S. consumer prices surged 9.1% in June. It was the largest annual increase in more than four decades. Now shoppers are recalling the words of President Joe Biden, who one year ago assured Americans that inflation was temporary. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more. At this supermarket in McLean, Virginia, shoppers like 70-year-old George McBride are astounded by high prices. Um, notice it in, you know, the basics like eggs and milk. And, and you go to the fruit aisle or the fresh vegetable aisle, there's nothing less than like 3 or $4 per pound or per whatever. I mean, peaches are a dollar each. High inflation is a political risk for President Joe Biden and the Democratic Party heading into congressional elections in November. Many voters remember that one year ago, Biden said inflation was temporary. They were very late to the game. Um, and I don't think the administration's really put it as a very high priority. Virginia resident John Connor said the Federal Reserve could have acted quicker. But he added that inflation is just part of the economic cycle and will eventually improve. Well, I think the Federal Reserve said it was temporary, so I think maybe we could blame the Fed more than we can blame President Biden. Uh, they kept saying it was temporary for quite a while, and they finally had to change their tune, and now we have some serious interest rate hikes. Lisa Ross was shopping with her mother, Dana Birchfield. She said she had noticed a number of products were more expensive. I was just saying yesterday that I bought a six-pack of Diet Coke and it was over $8, and I remember it being five or something like that. And I've noticed it with wine prices. I've noticed it with dairy prices. Annual food prices are rising at their fastest pace since February 1981, and energy prices are posting their largest jump in more than 42 years. Snarled global supply chains and massive fiscal stimulus from governments earlier in the pandemic have driven inflation, and the ongoing war in Ukraine has also caused a spike in global food and fuel prices. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. We could be in for another interest rate hike. Wednesday, Atlanta's Federal Reserve Bank president said that everything is in play. Investors and economists think it's possible the Fed could hike interest rates by another three-quarters of a point, up to even a full percentage point before the end of the month. If it goes up a full point, that would be the first time in the modern era. Until now, Fed officials had expressed worries about a hike of that magnitude, but traders think it's becoming more likely as high inflation drags on. Inflation in the U.S. is sky high, and it's putting pressure on consumers and the Federal Reserve. What can Americans do, and what policies can help? We get some insight from a market analyst on this, and what we should expect going forward. Please welcome Joseph Trevisani, who is a senior analyst at FX Street. Thank you for making the time, Joseph. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Inflation hit 9.1% in June, and it's the highest it's been in 40 years. Do you think we're right. seeing the peak right now? I think we probably have seen a near-term peak because crude oil prices have come off substantially in the past three or four weeks, almost 20%. That will feed through to consumer prices. Energy prices, gasoline prices have one of the main drivers of this burst of inflation. Are we seeing any global challenges that are on the horizon that may contribute to this? Well, none of the global challenges have really changed. You know, if you are following what happened in Sri Lanka recently, um, it's a terrible situation. I think you're going to see more of that. The inflation that is affecting our countries around the world as well, and for many people who are in much uh, weaker economic situation, it's going to be very uh, real problematic for the globe. 
What can you tell us about the yield curve between 10 and two year interest rates and what it means for a possible recession? Well, it's a classic, it's a classic sign for recession. It means that the future is far more dubious than the present. That I think is happening right now. You are seeing concern that six months, a year from now, we're going to be in recession. Well, if we're in a recession, the classic Fed response is to cut rates. Therefore, future rates are lower than current rates. The rates on the 10-year are lower than the rates on the two-year. Standard sign doesn't always follow through, but it's pretty reliable. So the Fed increased its rates by 75 basis points. Has this made any impact? Not on inflation, no, but I think it's starting to have an impact on the economy. It's starting to slow the economy a bit, but inflation, no. Inflation takes six months or a year or more to have any impact from Fed rates, and we're well behind that right now. So what can the Fed do now that inflation is sky high and it's putting the pressure on them? Well, the Fed is in a, in a really bad position because it underestimated inflation for a long time. Now it has basically said, well, we're going to do everything we can, but it's facing an economy which is very, very fragile. If you look at the, uh, the Atlanta Fed GDP estimate for the second quarter, it's negative. It's negative 1.2%. If retail sales come in tomorrow negative or weak, that's probably going to drop. That is a traditional recession, two quarters of negative GDP. How does the Fed continue to raise rates at the pace that it's planning if the economy's in recession? Inflation's red hot, so a lot of stocks are down. Where's the hope in all this? Well, the hope is that inflation will end up being, even though the Fed said last year that it was temporary, that this burst of inflation, which has been fueled by energy costs, which is a policy choice in many cases, and by government spending will abate because the spending has abated somewhat. And hopefully we can get more energy in the pipeline and that will take care of at least the great increases that we're seeing. But I think we are going to see inflation for another six months, a year or more at much elevated rates. So the hope is for the future, not for the immediate. Well, hopefully that comes sooner than later. Now, what can Americans do to make their money go further right now? Well, there are standard ways to economize as far as you're considering what you're doing and what you're buying. Um, but I think the main concern for the economy is that the, the response Americans will have will be to cut back on discretionary spending. If you cut back on discretionary spending, part of that is necessitated because the food, transportation, the things that are required for life are rising even faster than the general inflation rate. If you get Americans cutting back on discretionary spending, you're getting very close to a recession. Joseph Trevisani at FX Street, thank you so much for your analysis. Thank you for having me. Biden's top officials are seeking quick action on a proposed bill to boost the U.S. semiconductor industry. They call the bill a national security issue. Here's more details on the discussion. Lawmakers represented by Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo are pushing a separate bill to address the shortage of semiconductors or microchips in the United States. Democrats have briefed the Senate, urging passage of the bill before the start of the August recess. Raimondo emphasized the urgency of the effort. Uh, my recommendation is that they move, move quickly. Uh, my recommendation is that it's a matter of national security because if they don't, these chip companies are going to invest. They're going to do it outside of America. Raimondo said President Joe Biden and his entire cabinet are on board. The legislation would earmark $52 billion to subsidize microchip production. 
It also aims to make the U.S. more competitive against China in the sector. It's in the interest of every American so we can sleep easy at night knowing our national security is protected and China won't eat our lunch to pass this bill, particularly the chips component because that's the most time sensitive, and I hope they do the right thing. Discussions on the proposed legislation have been going on in Congress for months. The Senate passed a version of the bill last year. The House passed its own version in February. The differences still need to be ironed out. This is not a close call. It is a very substantial national security challenge. So the legislation that we're trying to pass is a major national security issue. It is a major economic issue. And it is one where you cannot afford to delay. Once an agreement is reached in Congress, the bill will be sent to the White House for the president's signature. Now let's turn to the case of the ex-mayor in Arizona who pleaded guilty to ballot abuse. An investigation reveals details about her operations in which she collected ballots from members of the community. Here's more. Germina Fuentes is the former mayor of San Luis, Arizona. She's a board member of a local school district, a Democratic precinct committee person, and the owner of a construction company. She admitted to illegally collecting early ballots from four people. That was during a San Luis primary election in 2020. The evidence came from a then-GOP candidate for state senate. He went undercover to record a video that showed Fuentes collecting and filling out ballots. He handed over the video to local and state authorities who started an investigation. As part of the investigation, Monica Coral was interviewed. She is a former employee at Fuentes' construction company, and investigators' report reads that Coral was given envelopes, which she determined contained money. Fuentes informed her who would come to pick up the envelopes, and at the time of pickup, she would either leave a ballot or provide a time when Fuentes would come pick up their ballot. Coral also said that the majority of the ballots dropped off at the business were unopened, as if they just arrived in the mail. She estimates more than 50 ballots were dropped off. The punishment for Fuentes' felony conviction ranges from probation to two years in prison. In a statement to the Epoch Times, Fuentes' attorney said Fuentes has requested a mitigation hearing because the state's request for a year in prison is clearly excessive. Fuentes' sentencing was scheduled for June, but the court has vacated the sentencing hearing and scheduled a mitigation hearing for Fuentes in September. News 11 reported that the delay was the third time the sentencing for this case has been postponed. Fuentes' attorney described Arizona's ballot abuse law as part of a race-based anti-democratic voter suppression effort. Fuentes herself previously said that the charge was a result of political witchcraft and that her political opponents hated her. A former CIA agent charged with carrying out the largest leak of classified data ever was convicted in federal court Wednesday. Joshua Schulte handed the data to WikiLeaks in 2016, which published it in 2017 under the title Vault 7. Schulte was a computer engineer with the CIA's Center for Cyber Intelligence. He created special tools designed to pull data undetected from the agency's computers. Prosecutors say he accessed some of the country's most valuable intelligence-gathering cyber tools. Schulte's motivation in releasing the data was due to an ongoing feud he had with management and a co-worker. He was first arrested in 2017 on child pornography charges, then indicted on the data breach charges months later. Still to come, New York City's Emergency Management Office produces a public service announcement and advises residents on how to survive a nuclear attack. Opinion is divided in Times Square over its release. Find out more in just a minute here on NTD News.
Emergency management officials in Virginia are concerned that more than 40 people are missing after a severe storm. A series of severe thunderstorms stalled over Buchanan County Tuesday, dumping up to six inches of rain in just a few hours. The flooding caused landslides and washed out bridges, leaving many roads impassable. More than 100 homes were affected by the severe weather, and officials say it will take time to get to some areas. EMS agencies have established a shelter at an elementary school in Oakwood while the search for survivors continues. Governor Glenn Youngkin declared a state of emergency in southwestern Virginia in order to speed up disaster assistance to the flood-stricken area. Yet another update to a story that made international headlines recently. A man has now been charged with raping the 10-year-old girl from Ohio who got an abortion. Prosecutors suggest that the suspect may be in the U.S. illegally. Federal authorities say they're looking into it. Gershon Fuentes, 27 years old, has been living in Columbus, Ohio for seven years. He reportedly confessed to raping the 10-year-old girl from Ohio, who later traveled to Indiana to get an abortion. The girl also told police that Fuentes was the father. It's believed that at the time of the crime, she was only nine years old. Fuentes was arrested on Tuesday and arraigned on Wednesday, according to the Columbus Dispatch, which first reported on the story. He's now being held on $2 million bond. The judge said a high bond was needed because Fuentes might flee and the court had to guarantee the child's safety. Prosecutors wanted to hold Fuentes without bond, saying he's believed to be in the U.S. illegally. Fuentes's attorney says it would be unconstitutional to hold him without bond, mostly because DNA tests have yet to confirm that he's the father. It previously wasn't clear whether the girl was actually raped. Many, including the Ohio Attorney General, said there was no evidence for that. The bodies of Mexican smuggling victims who died in the sweltering truck trailer were sent back to Mexico on Wednesday. Now their families can mourn them at home. 25 of the victims will be brought back to their places of origin. That's according to the Mexican government, which will cover the repatriation expenses. Two flights with 16 bodies landed at the Toluca Airport in Mexico State, departing from San Antonio, and a third one is expected. Among those repatriated were some of the youngest victims. Misael Olivares was 16. His mother said her son had ambitions to go beyond the family's shoemaking tradition. His cousins, Giovanni and Jair Olivares, were 16 and 19. Their father said the family agreed to pay a smuggler $10,000 for each of his sons to be taken to the U.S. He said he had to pawn his home to make the payment. New York City's Emergency Management Office defended its decision to produce a public service announcement on Wednesday. The video advises residents on how to survive in case of a nuclear attack. And today's Andrew Thomas has the details. The animated ad lays out three steps New Yorkers should follow in the event of a nuclear strike. The video runs under two minutes and has garnered more than 485,000 views on YouTube since its release Monday. Opinion was divided in Times Square over its release. I feel like it's always important to inform the people of incoming danger, and I think um, if there was like a, a, set, like a plan that they were going to implement, I think that would also be important for us to know. The video instructs viewers to seek shelter away from windows, stay inside to reduce exposure to radioactive dust, and follow the media for official updates. So I think this message is a little alarming, quite frankly. There's so many other things going on to worry about. 
And if I have to find cover somewhere, I definitely will. But it's really hot today, and I honestly feel like I just can't be bothered today. The video was released as worries mount about the use of nuclear weapons as Russia's war in Ukraine continues. I'm originally from England, but I live in New York. And yeah, I mean, I think there was definitely a justified reason for it, just as a precautionary measure more than anything else. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm scared. I tell you the truth, I'm scared. I think about it a lot. At a press conference on Tuesday, New York Mayor Eric Adams applauded the Emergency Management Department for being proactive. He said the war in Ukraine makes the campaign particularly relevant and denied the idea that the public service announcement was alarmist. I'm a big believer in better safe than sorry. I take my hat off to OEM. This was right after the attacks uh, in uh, the Ukraine. And OEM took a very proactive step to say, let's be prepared. Russian officials have warned the U.S. and other countries to avoid any actions that would risk nuclear war. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. A New York Supreme Court judge has ruled that New York COVID-19 quarantine rules are unconstitutional and illegal. New York's isolation and quarantine procedures were enacted in February. Isolations may include those at home or in residential or temporary housing. They are subject to what the public health authority issuing the order determines is appropriate. A medical facility would be chosen if medical care is needed. Three Republican state lawmakers, along with activist group Uniting NYS, filed a lawsuit challenging the quarantine rules. They argued that the procedures were in violation of the New York State Constitution and a violation of the separation of powers. The lawsuit was against the governor, the commissioner of health, the state's health department, and the public health and health planning council. The judge said defendants did not provide scientific data or expert testimony to back up the quarantine rule. Local reports say the New York Attorney General's office has already applied to appeal the ruling. Pennsylvania officials say the LGBT community needs more visibility. To make that happen, they are spending $90,000 from tax revenue on LGBT pride celebrations across the state. This year's pride celebrations have featured rainbows, risque costumes, and drag shows. They often show support for children and families experiencing someone coming out as a member of the LGBT community. Governor Tom Wolf's administration announced grant recipients this week. However, the president of the Pennsylvania Family Institute says the governor's priorities ignore more pressing needs. He pointed out to the Epic Times that the governor has spent hard-earned tax dollars to fund 17 LGBTQ festivals. This during times of record inflation where families are struggling to make ends meet. Canceled flights aren't the only concerns at airports this year. There's also a lack of transportation security administration workers. Wednesday, TSA Chief David Pekuski told the Senate Commerce Committee that screeners are about 10 percent below what officials would like. Pekuski's been in his current position since 2017. He says this is the hardest time the agency has had in hiring workers during his tenure. Although numbers of screeners are down, he says airport security has not been compromised. He says employees are being transferred from slow airports to others where there are more passengers. Pekuski is also calling on Congress to give raises to TSA officers. He says they make roughly 30 percent less than those in other agencies. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is facing a lawsuit over their recovery plan for the endangered Mexican gray wolf. A coalition of environmentalists says the plan fails to address important issues. Here are the details. 
The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service's plan outlines when and how the Mexican gray wolves can be removed from the wild or released from captivity. The agency set a population target of 320 wolves in a single area that spans parts of Arizona and New Mexico. The Center for Biological Diversity and Defenders of Wildlife filed a complaint against the federal agency in a U.S. district court in Arizona. They say the agency's rule fails to address genetic concerns and limit the predators from roaming bigger swaths of the American Southwest. The environmentalists also say that the Fish and Wildlife Service prohibits wolves from moving into promising but yet unoccupied territory in the Grand Canyon and Southern Rockies regions. The group say scientists have identified that establishing more Mexican wolf populations is crucial to eventual recovery. They are asking the court to force the agency to reconsider the rule. The Mexican wolf is the rarest subspecies of the gray wolf in North America, but its population has grown in recent years. A survey done earlier this year showed at least 196 Mexican gray wolves in southwestern New Mexico and southeastern Arizona. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And just ahead, countries are making progress in talks to resume grain exports from Ukraine. The war has caused a grain shortage crisis, but Ukraine, Turkey, and the United Nations are hopeful that may change. And Canada grants itself an exemption on sanctions against Russia. The country is returning a turbine for Russia's Nord Stream 1 gas pipeline. We'll have all that and more for you right here on NTD News. Ukraine, the United Nations, and Turkey have hailed progress at talks aiming to resume Black Sea grain exports. The exports have been blocked by Russia and have created a risk of a grain shortage for millions. In Ukraine, some farmers have to brave shelling to harvest their crops. It's easier to be inside the harvester, says this one, because you can't hear the blast so much. But a lot of the produce the farmers bring in is stuck in the country. Some 20 million tons of grain sits in silos at Odessa port amid a Russian blockade. On Thursday, it seemed a deal to resume exports could be close. Talks involving Ukraine, Russia, Turkey and the United Nations took place in Istanbul. Now Turkish Defence Minister Hulusi Akar says a deal is close. We have seen that an agreement has been reached on many technical matters, including establishing a joint coordination centre carrying out joint controls at the entrance and exit of the harbours and ensuring the safety of the routes of the ships that will carry grain and other types of food. Turkey says an agreement will be signed next week when all parties meet again. United Nations Chief Antonio Guterres was more cautious, saying only that there were signs of momentum. There was no immediate comment from Moscow, but Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky also said there was progress. A deal is seen as vital for global food security, with Ukraine and Russia both normally major exporters of wheat and other produce. The UN is also working to facilitate Russian grain exports, which have been hit as ship owners prove reluctant to operate in the region. Germany is facing a potential energy crisis this winter. That's if Russia continues to reduce gas supplies or cuts them entirely. But a Ukrainian entrepreneur has created solar panels that can be installed on any balcony. It's an effort to reduce reliance on Russian energy. 
NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details. Russia's Gazprom reduced the gas flow through the Nord Stream 1 pipeline by 60% last month. Gazprom cited technical problems, but German politicians have dismissed Russia's explanation, saying the decision was a political gambit to sow uncertainty and push up prices. Everyone is worried about this. It is clear that initially they won't send any more gas. But when the maintenance period is over, then they should bring the flow back to 40% of full capacity. But what happens when they don't do that? That would mean that the problem with gas becomes really big. A Ukrainian entrepreneur based in Berlin thinks her product can help. Karolina Atspadina founded We Do Solar last year, before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The company creates solar panels that also act as a balcony privacy screen. So what you see here, this is uh, solar site protection uh, for your balcony. And this is a set that generates uh, green energy from this, basically, doorsteps of your balcony. Atspadina launched the screens earlier this year, and she says they have all sold out. A full set for a balcony costs $1,300. After the Russian invasion of Ukraine began, she says that her company took on a new role. It has been a very big mission uh, to make sure that um, I reduce the reliance on the Russian gas and oil, um, not just in Germany, but in general in all the countries. And uh, I simply want independence or energy independence for people um, and to make sure that we don't fund wars. Since the war in Ukraine started on February 24th, Germany has had some success in reducing reliance on Russian energy. But it is a slow process that could take years. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Canada returns a repaired turbine needed for Russia's Nord Stream 1 gas pipeline. This means Canada is granting an exemption to its own sanctions against Russia. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau explains why. So this was a very difficult decision. But we have seen Russia consistently trying to weaponize energy as a way of creating division amongst the allies, of undermining the general population's support for this essential effort in Ukraine that governments continue to support. Trudeau says this decision is to support European nations that still depend on Russia for energy. Europe seeks continued energy flow from Russia until it can end its dependency on Russian gas. Trudeau adds that Canada's sanctions against Russia are aimed at President Putin and his enablers and aren't designed to harm Canadian allies and their populations. He also says Canada will continue to unequivocally stand with Ukraine. A group representing Ukrainians in Canada said it was seeking a judicial review of Canada's decision to grant an exemption to its sanctions against Russia. German President Frank-Walter Steinmeier visited a U.S. base stationed in his country. He said Germany and America are united in their efforts to support Ukraine. The Grafenvar training area is located in the German state of Bavaria. It's the largest U.S. training facility in Europe. There, the German president was received with military honors by Amy Gutman, U.S. ambassador to Germany. Steinmeier spoke to the 3rd U.S. Infantry Division. He thanked the troops for their contribution to the freedom and security of Germany. The president also reaffirmed Germany's commitment to the unity of the NATO alliance. Steinmeier's visit was a historic one. It was the first time in more than 25 years that a German president visited U.S. troops stationed in Germany. Currently, a total of more than 50,000 U.S. service members are based permanently in Germany, with their families and civilian personnel included. 
Coming up, an AI technology is designed for testing party members' loyalty to the Chinese Communist Party by analyzing people's facial expression. Stay tuned for more right here on NTD News. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says China is a major creditor of Sri Lanka. She said it's in the interest of both countries if China participates in restructuring Sri Lanka's debt. China is, of course, a very important creditor of Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka is clearly unable to repay that debt, and it's my hope that China will be willing to work with Sri Lanka to restructure the debt. Yellen's remarks came on the sidelines of a meeting among G20 finance officials in Bali, Indonesia. Sri Lanka owes China at least $5 billion. According to the International Monetary Fund, India and Japan also each lent more than $3.5 billion to the country. It owes another $1 billion to other rich countries. As of May, Sri Lanka's international debt totaled more than $50 billion. This was caused by years of heavy government borrowing and tax cuts worsened by the COVID-19 pandemic. Yellen also noted that China has failed to cooperate while G20 countries helped heavily indebted countries weather the pandemic. On debt restructuring for those countries, Yellen said she would urge other G20 members to put pressure on China. Like the U.S., Australia is also trying to boost its ties in the Pacific. It's part of the country's efforts to counter China's influence, which it says has expanded into its own backyard. Here's more on what Canberra has been doing. A friendly reunion between Australian Prime Minister Albanese and his Solomon Islands counterpart in Fiji on Wednesday. But one big issue continues to divide the two leaders. A security pact has come between them, one that Solomon Islands recently signed with Beijing. The pact allows Chinese naval ships to come into the region. Western democracies fear that accessibility will pave the way for China to boost military control in the region, an area largely in Australia's backyard. Before his talk with the Solomon Islands Prime Minister, Albanese said Australia's views on the pact were already very clear. We'd be concerned about any uh, permanent presence uh, there uh, in the Solomons and so close, of course, to uh, Australia. And we don't think that is in the interests of, of the region. Earlier this year, Canberra described the China-Solomon Pact as Australia's worst policy failure in the Pacific since World War II. Australia also promised more action on climate issues and about $360 million set aside for regional aid. Though, China isn't the only nation with a security pact with the Solomon Islands. Australia also has one. Under it, Australian police have been maintaining peace in the island country's capital since violence broke out last year. New Zealand also recently started work on security plans with the Solomon Islands. Both the Solomon Islands and another country in the region called Kiribati cut off their diplomatic ties with Taiwan in recent years, switching their allegiance to Beijing. Kiribati likewise pulled out of the Pacific Islands Forum last week. The move is being seen as a reflection of its deepening ties to China. Chinese scientists have a new gift for the Chinese regime. It's an advancement in technology that they say can gauge loyalty to the Communist Party. Here are the details. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Now, we head to the tech sector for a closer look at a new artificial intelligence system. 
ahead of the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP's 20th National Congress. A special gift was presented to the regime by a group of Chinese scientists. A local national science center introduced a just-developed AI system that, according to the scientists, can examine people's loyalty to the CCP, simply through their facial expressions. To do this, the AI extracts information from a person's facial visual epigenetic features, or known as EEG. That plus other details will be used to gauge how party members interact with the CCP's training program. It will reportedly indicate whether they're concentrating on or recognizing the training material they're given, and even if they're mastering it. The training is made up of a system of theories, including Marxism-Leninism and strategies from party leaders on how to rule China. News of the AI system sparked immediate buzz online. Some comments question the technology's accuracy, while others suggest CCP leader Xi Jinping should be tested first. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And coming up, wildfires are raging across Portugal, Spain, France, and Croatia as the continent suffers a heat wave. Temperatures are reaching above 110 degrees. And Canada becomes the first G7 country to increase the interest rate by a full percentage point in this cycle. The Bank of Canada says they are trying to tame inflation. We'll have all that and more for you after this short break. French President Emmanuel Macron led celebrations in Paris for the French Bastille Day holiday today. The French president waved at the waiting crowds from an open-top vehicle. Military personnel on horseback and marching bands paraded on the Champs-Élysées Avenue. Bastille Day commemorates the storming of the Bastille Prison in 1789. It's one of the key events of the French Revolution. The day has become a national holiday in France. Prior to Bastille Day, President Macron gave the traditional address to military personnel. He noted that war is returning, quote, fully and cruelly to European soil. He encouraged troops to maintain their moral strength in the face of conflict at Europe's doorstep. Wildfires raged across tinder-dry country in Portugal, Spain, France, and Croatia on Thursday, burning homes and threatening livelihoods as much of Europe baked in a heat wave that has pushed temperatures above 110 degrees. In Croatia, authorities deployed firefighting aircraft and dozens of firefighters and soldiers to try and contain three major wildfires along the country's Adriatic coast. And thousands of people were evacuated in Turkey's southwestern Dakta Peninsula as firefighters battled to contain blazes fanned by strong winds that spread to residential areas overnight. Countries including France and Portugal, suffering from a second heatwave in as many months, have been hit by a series of wildfires over the last few weeks. Elsewhere in Europe, thousands of firefighters battled more than 20 blazes that raged on Wednesday across Portugal and western Spain, menacing villages and disrupting tourist holidays amid a heatwave that pushed temperatures above 
113 degrees Fahrenheit in some parts of the region. Meanwhile, on the Greek island of Samos, two people died on Wednesday after a helicopter fighting a forest fire crashed into the sea, a Greek Coast Guard official said. Greece is also plagued by wildfires every year due to hot and dry weather conditions. The European Union is sending some 200 firefighters from various countries in Europe to assist the country throughout the summer. This week, for the first time since 2002, the euro and the dollar neared parity. A German economist explains what this means and what impact it brings to the European economy. Here are the details. Daniel Gross is a German economist and director of the Center for European Policy Studies in Brussels. He explains that euro-dollar parity is not so much that the euro is weak, but that the dollar is strong. But this is not necessarily bad news for Europe. But the strong dollar means also export opportunities for everybody else. And uh, that should help us uh, in a couple of years uh, to compensate for the higher oil prices. The euro area has always adjusted uh, in this sense. Uh, first, uh, we have to pay for higher oil and gas. Our external accounts go into deficit. But after a while, our exports increase, and then also we get more jobs, uh, and therefore uh, the adjustment uh, can be done. The Economist says that for Europe, the only area impacted by the war in Ukraine is the gas price. It has gone up 10 times. And therefore, uh, we really might face a problem if on top of the reduced uh, deliveries from elsewhere, Russia actually embargoes Europe. And in that case, it is possible that we have a short-lived recession in Europe. And that perspective, that danger, uh, might also have something to do with the relatively weak euro these days. Meanwhile, American tourists visiting Europe react to the exchange rate. It seemed like the buying power didn't really affect me too much. Uh, we were actually able to purchase everything in advance. So our travel was paid in advance and then obviously any other uh, you know, amenities that we purchased along the way. But it seemed like it was relatively reasonable. I like, I like that it's equal, the euro and the dollar are equal, so I know exactly what I'm spending. Because the euro and the dollar are about the same, it definitely encourages us to spend. It's like it's on sale here, so we're having no problem shopping. The last time the euro was below $1 was on July 15, 2002. Some analysts say the current conversion rate could last for at least a couple of weeks. Canada's central bank raised its benchmark interest rate by a full percentage point on Wednesday. Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklem says there are three reasons. First, inflation is too high and more people are getting more worried that high inflation is here to stay. We cannot let that happen. Restoring price stability, low, stable, and predictable inflation is paramount. Second, the Canadian economy is overheated. There are shortages of workers and of many goods and services. Demand needs to slow so supply can catch up and price pressures ease. And third, our goal is to get inflation back to its 2% target with a soft landing for the economy. The Bank of Canada raised its policy rate from 1.5% to 2.5% and said more hikes would be needed. This is the central bank's biggest rate hike since 1998, and it surprised markets. 
The Bank of Canada governor says an increase of this magnitude in one meeting is very unusual. It reflects very unusual economic circumstances. The Canadian Central Bank expects inflation to go higher in the middle quarters of 2022, averaging around 8%. Canada's inflation rate hit 7.7% in May, near a 40-year high. Canada was the first G7 country to increase the interest rate by 100 basis points in this cycle. Peru wants to secure a deal with the United States as soon as possible to help it tackle the use of planes to smuggle cocaine. It comes at a time when coca cultivation has been growing. Peru is one of the world's top producers of cocaine and has been seeking an agreement with the United States since March for non-lethal support in intercepting planes transporting illegal drugs. That support was once in place, but the U.S. suspended its program two decades ago when the Peruvian Air Force accidentally shot down a plane. They mistook it for a plane belonging to drug traffickers and killed two U.S. citizens in the attack. Production in Purdue has been mostly growing along the border with Brazil, where coca leaf crops have increased nearly six-fold in size in two years, adding 25,000 acres in 2021. The national growth of coca leaf crops is expected to have risen in 2021, although official figures have yet to be published. In 2020, Peru estimated there were 61,700 hectares of coca leaf crops. Farmers are striking in the Netherlands and now also in Argentina. They launched a one-day protest saying they're not being paid enough but taxed too much. Argentina's main farm associations launched the 24-hour grain and livestock trading halt on Wednesday. They're criticizing the government for high tax rates, currency controls, and a scarcity of diesel. All that comes exactly during harvest season. They say they're also against excessive government intervention in the market. Fuel prices are currently high in Argentina due to global energy concerns. Truckers have already been protesting for weeks because of that. The farmers' protest did not affect grain shipments. Argentina is the world's number one exporter of processed soy and number two for corn. And coming up, tennis star Novak Djokovic says he wants to play in the Australian Open and the U.S. Open. That's despite trouble over his refusal to get a COVID-19 vaccine. Find out more right here on NTD News. The European Space Agency has launched the first flight of its Vega-C rocket designed to provide more bang, or customers' buck, in the increasingly competitive business of launching satellites into orbit. Vega-C is an upgrade to the Vega rocket that made its debut in 2012 as a launcher specialized in lifting small payloads to space. The new rocket will be able to carry heavier payloads than its predecessor while burning less fuel. ESA says Vega-C will be particularly useful for launching Earth observation satellites, but it is also envisaged as the carrier for Space Rider, an uncrewed robotic laboratory that will be the agency's first reusable space vehicle. Vega-C accelerates much faster than its big brother, Ariane 5, ESA's workhorse heavy launcher, reaching a speed of 16,000 kilometers per hour within two minutes of launch. Astronomers published a study in the journal Nature that details a strange signal they discovered back in 2019. It's called a fast radio burst. Hundreds of these bursts of radio waves with unknown origins have been detected since the first one was found in 2007. 
but this flash was different. Most of the time, they only last a few milliseconds. This one was for three seconds and also produced predictable peaks every fraction of a second that are described as mimicking a heartbeat. Scientists have no idea where the signal came from. Their best guess is wherever it originated is about a billion light years away. Due to its properties, astronomers think it was produced by a turbulent cloud of plasma emitted by a neutron star. Serbian tennis star Novak Djokovic says he hopes he can play in the next Australian Open. That's despite not being vaccinated against COVID-19 and getting deported when he came for January's tournament. I love Australia. I've, I had the best Grand Slam results in that country. So hopefully in January I can be there because I want to be there. And I also want to be in New York. I want to be in America. I want to be everywhere where I can possibly play. Djokovic was in Bosnia to inaugurate a tennis complex. He said last January's Australian saga would not be repeated at the upcoming U.S. Open. The U.S. has not cleared him to come into the country without being vaccinated against COVID-19. The 21-time Grand Slam champion refuted that he forced his way into Australia last January and said it was proven in court that he didn't. Djokovic said last week that he still does not plan on being vaccinated. Unless rules change or he is given leeway, he might not appear in another slam again until next May's French Open. It would make it harder for him to catch up with Rafael Nadal, who currently holds the all-time men's best singles record. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to put our email address on screen. We'd love to hear from you. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. Until next time, Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City. 